Please listen carefully. Psych Essentials is a show about learning psychiatry. It's fun and educational, but should not be taken as medical advice or opinion. So kick back and try not to worry about those glaring ego deficits. We like you anyway. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, James. You know, we've been sitting here for months, and we've never really told people what our office looks like. That's true. That is true. You know, we may have to paint a picture here with words because of the audio media. So we have, you're sitting in a beautiful chair, and it has this kind of like a high back, and and then I'm sitting over here, and there's like, there's a couch on the other side of your office. Right, right. And I like to lie down on the couch. It's like tufted. It's like a nice suede. A couple pillows I've noticed, and uh, relaxing. Yeah. You know, I've never noticed, but there there is somebody who's sitting on the couch. Right. Did you invite this person in? Yes. Uh, who is this stranger, and why are they in our recording studio? Well, they are our special guests today, actually. We're super excited to have Dr. Alyssa with us, psychiatrist extraordinaire and expert about psychotherapy. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, We're super excited to have Alyssa. Alyssa has researched lots about education and therapy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So just kind of to introduce what is therapy I think a lot of people have some concept of this, either from personal experience or their family or friends or the movies. I think we've all seen kind of a movie scene of somebody lying on a couch and the therapist says, tell me about your mother. Is that realistic? One type of therapy, but a bit of a caricature. I'd say the the range is, is pretty huge. Yeah, and that's even a caricature that we were just making fun of just a bit ago. There is, in fact, not a couch in our recording <laughs> studio as we are recording right now. Unfortunately, it would probably be more comfortable. But. <laughs> and you don't have to have a couch to do therapy. Maybe a little bit of a trope. Correct. So, so what is this, I guess, at its core? So therapy is about addressing issues in the realm of mental health by going to talk to somebody. Um, so if we think of kind of the key forms of treatment in psychiatry, we have medications, we have somatic therapies like ECT and TMS, and then psychotherapy is, is another big bucket. Many therapies involve just talking. Some involve behaviors, usually some exposure to the things that people struggle with, and we'll talk more about that later. So Alyssa, who goes to therapy? So Again, therapy is for anything in the range of mental health, and so it's not just mental illness. So it's not just depressed people that go get therapy. Right. Certainly people with depression and other DSM disorders do go to therapy, and we'll talk about that more. But it's also for things like relationship difficulties, adjusting to different phases of life, managing stress. That sounds like a lot of people, really. Do doctors ever go to therapy? Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. This is just a good plug for us to talk about. It's super important for physicians and physicians in training to consider their own therapy. Compared to the general population, we have higher rates of burnout and suicide. And so many of us can benefit from therapy over the course of our lives. I always like to tell patients about a quote from our former department chair who says to patients, if you ever have an opportunity to get physical therapy or psychotherapy, take advantage of it. Hmm. I really like that. It's, it's like the comparison between physical therapy and psychotherapy. It's sort of like getting tuned up for your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like most of us, if we had a physical therapist who we went to every week, you'd have stronger muscles and better posture even before there was a problem. 
especially with physical therapy, like they often work on like the really small muscle groups that you don't even realize aren't working until you start working them out. And you're like, this exercise is so hard and I don't understand how hard it is. Mm -hmm. Same thing with your brain. Right. Totally. There's like some dark corner in your brain that definitely needs a workout. Mm -hmm. There can be stigma about psychotherapy, but that surprises me because I think that in point of fact, it actually can feel really natural and normal and just kind of like having a conversation with somebody else. Mm hmm. I think that's one thing people have this very specific idea of what therapy looks like. And actually, it's often much more casual and comfortable than that. And so, I mean, therapy can be done by psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, other practitioners. You go to somebody's office. Usually you sit down. You do not lie down on their couch. There's some therapies where you do, but that's that would be something that you would discuss with your therapist before you started that. Is it fair to say that that's like a little more historical and maybe we're moving more towards like just sitting and talking with somebody? The type of therapy where you lie down is called psychoanalysis and that kind of came out of Freud's original therapy. People still do that, um, but it's definitely the anomaly nowadays. So you go, you meet, you find somebody, whether it's by recommendation of somebody else or they're covered by your insurance or somehow you find a therapist. And like you said, that can be like lots of different people. So a therapist is not the same as another therapist or another, like there can be a mm -hmm. huge range of people who call themselves therapists. Mm -hmm. And then once you've found somebody, you go to your office, you sit down and, and then what? What do you say? So usually you start just kind of talking about whatever's on your mind, difficulties you're having. And then depending on the type of therapy as things go on, it might stay this kind of free form, talk about whatever's on your mind, or it might be more structured. Like in cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, people usually make an agenda. They have like work that they do at home outside of sessions. You do a lot of work on learning and practicing new skills. So it sounds like, I mean, there's a there's a broad range of what therapy can look like. On one spectrum, it can be super structured. And then on the other hand, it can be super freeform and unstructured. Mm -hmm. How often would somebody go to therapy? Again, depends on the type of therapy. I would say the most common is that people go weekly, but sometimes less and then sometimes more. Like in psychoanalysis, people are going four or more times per week. And how long do people do therapy once they start? Becoming a theme here, it depends on the type of therapy and also kind of the nature of your concern or, or what's going on. But it can range anywhere from one visit to weeks to months or, or years in some types of therapies. So this is almost, in my mind, as broad as like when somebody says, I'm going to see a doctor. Like that can mean so many different things, right? right? There's so many different specialties. And maybe some doctors you only see once because that's all you need. And some doctors you see every month for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned Freud. And I'm wondering if you could take us back a little bit and tell us, like, how did we get here? Like, what, what is this entity? Maybe you could walk us back through some history. Mm -hmm. So as you guys might know, the originator of psychotherapy was Sigmund Freud, and he developed several theories over the course of his career, but generally was interested in people's unconscious conflicts. When you say unconscious conflict, yeah. like, whoa, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. So Freud thought that there were kind of various levels of the mind or, or kind of ways in which we hold information or thoughts or wishes in our mind, and some of them are in our conscious mind, we're fully aware of them, and some of them are either unconscious, we have no awareness of them, or in this kind of pre-conscious space where we don't think about them a lot, but they are kind of there and accessible to us. Okay, so there's kind of like levels of awareness of things. Mm -hmm. But I think then we think of things that are driving people's behavior, that kind of produce these patterns in their lives that only become evident over time. And so... A lot of psychoanalysis is kind of trying to get to those unconscious dynamics. And so in order to get there, what people do is that they 
or what they would do historically was lie on a couch and free associate, which means that they say whatever comes into their mind. And so this was the, like the main form of therapy until about the 1960s. And again, like lives on today. Therapies in this category are, of course, psychoanalysis and then what we call psychodynamic therapies, which use a lot of the same kind of theoretical principles of exploring the unconscious, but are in a different format where you're coming less often, usually once or twice a week, and it's done sitting up, engaging with your therapist. That's a really interesting historical perspective. So Freud thought there was things that you weren't even aware of that were somehow causing conflict in your life. They're causing strife. And the way to get to that was just sort of by talking and talking and talking while you sort of lay back. And he had reasons, right, for like why you would mm-hmm. sort of lay back in this position. And somehow you would like get to the root of these conflicts with the guidance maybe of your therapist. Mm -hmm. So the therapist would kind of help the patient uncover some of these unconscious Mm -hmm. conflicts that were going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if that's where we kind of came from, what what happened in the 1960s? What's new? In the 1960s, there was this therapist named Aaron Beck, and he had this idea of rather than needing to chase down the origins of a thought or understand where it came from, his perspective was more about What do we do with that thought in the here and now? And is it helpful? Is it realistic? This formed the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. So that includes the cognitive part, which is kind of what we're talking about, but also the behavior. So it's like, okay, so you're having this thought, but like, what do you actually do with this thought? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so cognitive behavioral therapy is, is divided into these two realms. One where you're thinking about thoughts and the other is looking at behaviors that come out of them. And the big idea is there's this relationship between or kind of a triangle, if you think of it, of thoughts and behaviors and feelings. And a lot of people want to feel different, but it's hard to just change how you feel. And so the idea is that you change either how you're thinking or how you're behaving in order to impact the other two. Cool. So that's something we're going to dive into in the next episode. So stay tuned for more of that. So, Alyssa, I've heard of these things called third wave therapies. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Mm -hmm. After CBT, kind of the next big wave of therapy has been these third wave therapies. And most of them use a lot of principles from CBT. They include dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. Similarities to CBT, they are skill-based oftentimes. Many of them use mindfulness strategies. And they're thinking not even so much do the thoughts matter as just like what are our values and how do we move forward to the life that we want. Cool. So we'll dive into that a little bit more as well. So far, we've been talking about what these different therapies have that distinguish them. But when you think about therapy in general, are are there things that unite all therapies? Mm -hmm. There's actually a concept of common factors in psychotherapy. Obviously, medical students on psychiatry are in a lot of different settings, and many of these are things that you can apply right now on your rotation. So it's not like you would have to be a practicing therapist for these to be useful. We'll tell you a little bit about each of them and give you kind of some examples about how you can use them in your um, in in your work on your rotations. Cool. So maybe we'll touch on them, and then we can also have a link on our website. So what's the first common factor? The first common factor is patient characteristics, which is kind of a, a broad thing to define, but it's basically like it matters what your patient brings to the therapy relationship. We often talk in psychiatry about how, quote, psychologically minded people are. We also think about things like, do our patients have relationships? That says a lot about a person if they have sustained relationships in terms of their ability to engage in therapy. Things like personality disorders fall into this realm, readiness for change. So 
some things can be changed and some things can't, but sort of depending where the person is coming from at the outset, that might draw you to work on short-term goals or maybe longer-term goals with them. Yeah, and it, it informs how you think about your patients. Okay, so in addition to what people bring to therapy, what other factors are important? The second common factor is something called the Hawthorne effect. It's this idea that people are more likely to change when they're being observed. What this means in therapy is that being listened to and given attention is a changing factor in and of itself. If I know that somebody is watching how much chocolate ice cream I'm eating on a daily basis, I'm... Might not binge on the whole carton. I might not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not rule that out. But yeah, that's the Hawthorne effect. So when people know that they have someone that they're kind of checking with regularly, that can be a big motivation for change. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like a positive thing that we can kind of exploit in therapy, mm -hmm. right? Totally. Yeah. And I think in therapy and in medicine in general, right, like we know even in an outpatient primary care clinic... People having listening and the attention of their physician can be really beneficial. We see it in therapy. Oftentimes people get better early on in therapy, even when there's really not been a lot done. And it's just we think it comes from that expectation of like, I have this person, they're invested in me, they listen to me. That really does a lot for people. And that kind of leads into the third category as well. Which is hope and positive expectations. People think that it accounts for up to a third of successful outcomes in therapy. So if you were to use this uh, in a, you know, if you were a student and you were kind of to use this, what would be the implication? On a really simple level, just kind of conveying that hope and optimism that you have for your patients to them. For myself, I tend to be more um, like I lean on the therapy side more than the meds. And so I think sometimes I undersell my medication recommendations to people. Like I, I don't talk them up as much as I should. And so I think th this applies for both meds and therapy that we need to tell people, like, I think this is a good treatment for you. I have hope that you can get better with this. There is hope for you in the future. Just stating that. Sometimes we don't explicitly say that to people and it can be pretty meaningful. Mm -hmm. That kind of led me to, to think about one thing and it, and that is about the placebo effect. Like, is is this a placebo effect? It is, essentially. And and I think we really poo-poo that in psychiatry. We have big placebo effects on most of our drugs. And certainly drug companies don't like that because it makes their drugs look less effective in in research. But this is a benefit to us. Like, it helps that people think that they're going to get better when they start taking an antidepressant. And so, I mean, this is not something that we should be dismissing. It's It's a helpful tool to us. We want people to feel better. Me too. Yeah, regardless of whether it's placebo or something else. Right. Okay, so then you, you've kind of talked about the, the patient and you've talked about the therapist, but there's something in that kind of bond together, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Which is called the therapeutic alliance, which I would say is kind of this sense of teamwork, of being on the same page. People get very technical in how they define this, but I think of it as like the therapist and the patient have the same, have a good sense of what their goals are, what they're going to do to get there. And how they feel about each other and how they express that. So therapeutic alliance, it sounds like, is very much like a team-based kind of collaborative approach as, as opposed to being that like old school, like doctor-patient, doctor is higher up than the patient approach that was more hierarchical. Right. And so that, again, applies very nicely on inpatient psychiatry, in primary care, really any setting in medicine. Obviously, there are some situations where you can't be quite as collaborative as you might want to, but generally when you can. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like asking people, what do you think is going to help you feel 
better. And then they might say, well, if I take my medications every day and I go to groups and maybe if I were able to find housing, like they'll, they can start brainstorming things that are going to be most applicable for their own life as opposed to you sort of dictating what is going to be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. I know too that being on a team for me can feel more effective. Like I, we are, I'm on, I'm doing this with other people. I'm in this with somebody else and we have the same goals and we're going to get it done together. It can sometimes feel like a collaboration. Are there things about the therapist in particular that are thought to to yield better outcomes? Mm-hmm. There are, and and there's a lot of things in that domain. To kind of break it down to the key ones, I think empathy is probably one of the biggest ones. So, Alyssa, how does empathy differ from sympathy? I think those are two common terms that medical students might hear a lot, but maybe not have a great sense of. Yeah. So I think of empathy as trying to understand another person and kind of put yourself in their shoes. And so it's really, as you're listening to someone, kind of thinking, like, what was this experience? What was it like for them? Rather than thinking about your opinion on it or, like, what do you feel about this? And so sympathy, I think we all, like, there's the example of the sympathy card in which you say to someone, I'm sorry about whatever's happened to you. It's some level of empathy because you're assuming that they are not doing well. But really, the message there is, like, how I feel about your situation. So empathy is a big thing that we look for or that we strive for as therapists. Other things that are key behaviors, having positive regard for your patients, which I would think of as looking for the best in them, trying to find their strengths and highlight the areas where they're doing well. Seeking feedback is an important one, kind of goes back to that therapeutic alliance. And then repairing ruptures. So things will inevitably go wrong in therapy or in relationships in general. And so being willing to talk about that in a non-defensive way. So what's the last factor that's common to all therapies? So this one is, is kind of in a different arena. It's basically the impact of events outside the therapy. And so this is just to remind us that there are going to be things going on in our patients' lives that we have no influence over. People having you know job loss deaths, other stressors or successes. And and there's not a lot that you can do about those, but it's just to keep in mind, like these things are having an effect on the therapy as well. Yeah. Like when my goldfish died, the therapy went way downhill and that was nothing on the therapist. It was really some stuff I was dealing with. It must with. have been such a difficult experience <laughs> Listen, for you. Imagine what you must have been going through. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you for that empathy. <laughs> okay. So I, I did want to ask practically, like how do people get therapy? Like, mm-hmm. wh- like what does this even... How does this even happen? Because I'm, I'm sold, but I, I want to know how to get somebody to this. So it depends on the setting. On inpatient psychiatry, I mean, it used to be historically that people were hospitalized for a long time and they got a lot of therapy while they were in the hospital. Not the case anymore. And most of the people get therapy in groups when they're hospitalized, which as a side plug there, I would say, for those of you who are on inpatient psychiatry, I would go to as many groups as you can possibly attend. I think there's a lot of learning there. So now hospitalizations are shorter, people are there for a short amount of time, and so to develop a whole deep relationship with somebody would would be kind of quick. So most therapy tends to happen outside the hospital or in the outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. So what could that look like? Say somebody did want to get a therapy, how would they go about that? Mm-hmm. So it depends, again, what your role is with a patient. If you are like someone's primary care doctor, 
you could have a list of therapists that in your community who you routinely refer people to. Oftentimes in psychiatry, we'll kind of give this task to our patients to encourage their ownership of it. And so often I'll recommend to my patients to go to the website Psychology Today. They have like a little find the therapist link and you can put in like where you live and what kind of therapy you want. As a backup, you can always consult with psychiatrists in your system to figure out what are ways to refer people in your area. And I think if you as you know, if you personally are looking for a therapist, I would ask people. I would ask, you know, if you have a good relationship with your primary care doctor, you're certainly welcome to ask them. If you are on a rotation and you know docs, they might know other people within your network who they like. And I think that's a totally reasonable way to start finding people. Mm-hmm. A lot of this depends on your insurance and what type of insurance you have and what healthcare system you're in. And so it's hard to give like a really specific recommendation, but these are all these are all reasonable ways to, to get started. Yeah, and so that kind of wraps up our discussion about our introduction to psychotherapy. What are the kind of highlights of our discussion thus far? We've talked about different types of therapy, and we'll get more into how our therapy is different in the next few episodes. But as a big picture, there's a lot that they have in common. We really encourage you to be open to getting therapy for yourself. And there's lots of different ways that people get into therapy. It depends on the setting, and you can talk with your attending or resident in the short term if you have more questions about that. Cool. Well, thanks for kicking us off on this introduction to psychotherapy. And I'm looking forward to the next two and we get into some of these different types of therapies in a little more depth. Cool. Thanks for having me. Of course. And meanwhile, you can check out our website, um, leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear more about in the future. Our website is www.psychessentials.org. You can also follow us. We're on Facebook and on Twitter at Psych Essentials. You can rate, comment, and share. Psych Essentials is on iTunes. Our music is by Javier Suarez off his album Tumbling Dishes. There's always a link on our website. We didn't talk much specifically about people, places, details, but they're always changed to protect confidentiality. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Till next time. Bye.